Hello, I'm Ben Hansen-Hicks, and this is the So What Do You Do podcast. Every week we'll be talking to someone in a different industry, finding out what their day-to-day lives are really like, and what tips and advice they have on how to break in or move across into their industries. I hope you enjoy listening. This week, we'll be talking to the BBC presenter and broadcaster, Charlotte Smith. She's currently one of two main presenters for BBC Radio 4's Farming Today, and is also a regular contributor of BBC One's Countryfile, episodes of which are regularly watched by millions. Growing up in the Leicestershire village of Quorn, Charlotte's love of radio began as a teenager. She then quickly went on to volunteer at BBC Radio Leicester, before training on the BBC's local reporter scheme. Over her career, she has presented many high-profile BBC programmes, working on Radio 4's The World Tonight and You and Yours, to name just a few. Charlotte has also been a reporter and producer on Five Live and now regularly presents Countryfile, as well as being a staple for Radio 4's Farming Today programme. With her voice and face known to millions around the UK, it's a real privilege to have you with us today. So Charlotte, welcome. Thank you very much. Not too cringy, I hope. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) So, first off, cast your mind back to yourself at 16, just finishing year 11. And for our international listeners, year 11 is the final year of compulsory education in the UK. Did you have a career in mind? Where did you want to end up? Well, I had two careers in mind. Um, So the first was to be an actress, um, (laughs) which I thought was obviously a bit of a stretch because I grew up in in Leicestershire. I didn't actually know any actors at all. Um, And the second was to do something in radio because, as you mentioned, I'd already already got involved in radio um, and loved it, but couldn't quite see how it worked in a career way. Whereas, I mean, acting (laughs) kind of seemed like something I would really love to do. So those were the that, that was sort of vaguely the plan at that point. Um, But neither of my parents went to university. So it was very much expected that I would. Um, So I knew that after O-levels, because I'm really old, so it was before GCSEs, after O-levels, I knew I would be doing A-levels and that I probably would end up going to university because that was my mother's plan. You went on to study English and drama at the University of Kent from 1983 to 86. Did that have an effect or a pin drop moment on which direction you wanted to go in? Yeah, it did. I mean, an absolute pin drop moment. So I was doing English and drama. So the the drama is subsidiary. Um, And I was with lots of people who were doing either um, drama and English or just straight drama. And um, one or two were really, really talented actors. And I was actually on a stage in the Gulbenkian Theatre um, in a not very good production of something or another. And I remember walking down to the front of the stage and basically mugging to try and get a laugh um, and thinking, I'm quite good at this, but I'm not very good at this. And that was pretty much where I stopped. <laughs> and and I, I lit a few plays and I got involved in that sort of thing. But I just... You know, there's a standing joke in the family that I'm very sensible and it was very sensible not to go into acting because it's a terrifying career. But also, I just think to do it, you have to be brilliant, actually. And you also have to be able to sing and dance, neither of which I can do even halfway good enough. And I just had that moment of clarity. And actually, as it's turned out, um, I'm not very good at getting rejected. You know, um, 
and and I know I now know people who are professional actors, and they go to endless auditions now all self-taped and you send it in and they don't even hear anything you know you don't even get the thanks but no thanks you get nothing and I would not thrive in that environment so I was lucky although yeah I would have still I still think in my heart of hearts I'd have you know clearly I'm brilliant so at that point I'd sort of worked out that in radio and local radio which was where I, where I was volunteering there are two sort of career paths. There's the presenting a program, which is a little bit nebulous and it's quite difficult to see how you do that. Or there's journalism. Um, and that made absolute sense because I've always been quite news obsessed and there's a very much a career path. And so that's what I did. I applied to the BBC for lots lots of trainee, uh, report, trainee schemes and got on the lowest of the low, which was the local radio trainee reporter scheme, which was utterly brilliant. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. That was at BBC Radio Leicester, wasn't it? What was that like? Well, it was. It started. So, what it the the way the scheme works, and obviously it's now history. Um, it took you to London and taught you kind of journalism and attempted to teach me shorthand, which was hilarious. And then it just threw you out to lots of different local radio stations. So I actually went all over the country, and then you came back to London for a little bit more. And and so it went on. And then at the end of it, you weren't guaranteed a job, but they tried to help you find a job. Um, and actually, I worked all over the place. But my mum, who'd had cancer when I was a teenager, her cancer had come back. So I went back to Radio Leicester just to be near. And then, of course, she recovered and I was stuck there. Um, so, um, so, yeah, so I ended up back at Leicester. Yeah, which was which was lovely because there's, there's something about coming from a place and then ending up on local radio that that is lovely. You know, because you know where you are, and you know, kind of, and and you're proud of the place. You know. Mm. And how many how many years did you stay there? Oh gosh, um, probably four or five, I think. And then I went um, on an attachment, which is this scheme that the BBC still has, where they one department will lend you to another, and you you go and learn. So actually, I applied for a producer's attachment on the Today program. And did the best interview I have ever done in my life. So I applied for this thing and I did the best board, the best board interview I have ever done. I mean, it was, I was just, you know, I was brilliant and I've never, never been that good before or since. Anyway, and um, there was the editor of The World Tonight was on the panel and she offered me a, um, a, a an attachment there because it was a trainee job on today and a proper producer's job on The World Tonight. And The World Tonight was a very steep learning curve because I didn't know where abroad was really. And I certainly didn't know why it was important. I spoke no languages. I mean, God knows. And I went into the office. Everyone was a lot older than me. And they all spoke at least three languages. And I learned so much. They taught me how to drink whiskey as well, because I didn't drink whiskey at the time. Because uh, I was 24. I was so young looking back. So young. But yeah, that was great. So I did that for six months and then went back to local radio, then regional telly, and then on. Alongside TV, you've been you've been a producer on The World Tonight, and you've also been on Five Live. Um, yeah, I was part of the launch team for Five Live. That was really wow. good fun. Yeah, Radio Bloke, as we were called at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was, I mean, it was mad because we were really not welcome in Broadcasting House at the time. So we used to have a running order, which the Today programme could see. And we worked out that after a while, they were nicking our guests, because who, of course, would much rather be on Radio radio 4 than on 5 Live that nobody had really heard of on crackly medium wave. So we used to put, we used to write, you know, rubbish in our running order and have two, you know, running order was actually just on a piece of paper. I mean, it was <laughs> ridiculous, but hugely good fun. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> Does that mean that you've worked, you worked with, um, uh, 
Jane Carvey because she was. She I was... did. Yeah, I was her producer. Oh right. Yeah, she was the first voice on on she Five was. Live, and I was the I was one of the producers on the um, on the Breakfast program. So yeah, I worked with her a lot, um, and she's brilliant. I think she's the best, best, best of best broadcaster of our generation. I think she's fantastic. And what was that like starting a new radio station? Because uh, I mean, all the others had been going for decades and decades by that point. I can imagine it would be a mix of um, nerve wracking and exciting. Yeah, it was I suppose it was a bit nerve wracking. I mean, we were quite. Um, I mean, how old would I have been? I was twenty nine, maybe. Um, and at that age, you sort of think you can rule the world, which does help because you have to think you can do that. And we had some brilliant bosses. I worked with a guy called Bill Rogers, who had worked on Newsbeat and all over, and another guy called Mark Sandell. Um, and they were just they were really fun, and we were a bit irreverent, and we we were supposed to be, you know. Um, so no, it was it was brilliant. It was I loved it. Um, but the hours were absolutely dreadful. So I just moved to London. Um, I would, I'd, I'd just been dumped um, really badly. I was so broken hearted. That's why I applied for the job in the first place. I needed to get out of Nottingham. So I applied for this job, ended up in London, age 29, thought, right, this is great. I'm going to meet loads of new people. And my hours were either nine at night till nine in the morning for the night shift or 11 in the morning till 11 at night for the day shift. I know. So I didn't see anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, till nine you'd literally just hear the mice every once in a while yeah, exactly <laughs> yeah. i know of gareth barlow the uh, newsreader oh i discovered gareth barlow gareth barlow is my fault <laughs> yeah so gareth barlow's mum if you've ever met her she's lovely wrote to farming today we did a big thing about how to get into farming and she wrote and she said my son has got i think six sheep at the time and desperately wants to get into farming what should we do so we went up and we interviewed him a few times and then castle howard heard and gave him a a field and then country file got involved and then gareth who's nobody's fool as you know said looked at us thinking they're working a lot less hard than i am i'm going to be a journalist and look at him now <laughs> Bless him. Yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think the main differences in working in TV and radio are? And do you prefer one over the other? I'm really lucky to work in both, and I would. I'm. I'm really happy to carry on working in both. Um, in radio, it's much more immediate, and it's much quicker. So, if you want to do it, you can do it. You don't really have to involve too many other people, and that makes it glorious. I think. And I think when you are somewhere or talking to someone you know you can conjure a picture telly is a lot more hassle because you've got to get lots more people involved and it's more expensive so there are more hoops to jump through um but it's really fun because it's much more collaborative so i I really like both actually i'm very lucky to work in both i think it's really fun and forgive me if I'm wrong, but um, I, I think I read this, um, that you once said that a conversation in a lift led you to presenting both to Radio 4's Farming Today and Countryfile. Uh, what happened? Yeah. Well, what happened was I was... Um I was working on you and yours as a reporter come presenter and the BBC went went through a reorganisation as it tends to do and it ended up being run by the team that ran Watchdog at the time and the boss came to me and said we'd like you to be a reporter on Watchdog and I said oh that's great I've got television experience and he said yeah not the kind of experience I'm after so go and work on this programme this daytime consumer programme uh, the really useful show in Birmingham. And then then do that for a bit and then you can come back and be on Watchdog. And I was like, yes, 
my career is made. Um, and I went off to Birmingham and he went off to ITV. Oh, so, shit. <laughs> so there I am in Birmingham thinking, oh, right, okay. So um, so I stayed in Birmingham, loved Birmingham. We had a really, you know, really fun. And then um, the programme comes off air. <laughs> like, oh, God, got to find something quick. Oh, no. And as it was coming to an end, um, I walked into a lift and a voice from the back of the lift said, oh, Charlotte, you can present radio, can't you? And I looked and it was a guy I'd worked with at Five Live called Andrew Thorman, who ran the Rural Affairs Unit um, by this point in Birmingham. And I said, yes, why? And he had mucked up the rotor. Uh, and they and I presented, I think, later that week, my first edition of Farming Today, just simply because, I mean, you know, I knew nothing about it. It was basically read out the words. Um, and then I sort of got sucked into it a bit. I just found it, particularly coming... I'd been in news and then I was coming out into this consumer sort of thing. And I just really loved being outside and particularly talking about the politics of farming. I don't know why. And food, I suppose, because I do like food. Um, And so that's how it started. Yeah, completely random. I mean, completely random. Do you you think luck and being in the right place at the right time plays a part in media careers more so than in any other industry? Yeah, I don't know because I, yeah, I can't really compare it because... But yes, it, I mean, in my career, it has played a bit of a part. But you can, and I look at my younger colleagues now, and I think they're better at this than, than my generation was, you can engineer your luck. You can get yourself in front of those people. And and you can, particularly now, you can do things off your own bat, like like you are, and, and like lots of people do now, in a way that we didn't didn't have the know-how or the technology and or frankly didn't have that hunger because you have to remember when I started when I got on my BBC traineeship in 1986 that would have been it kind of was still seen as that will be you for life Charlotte's joined the BBC and she'll be there until she retires at 65 and they give her a clock that's honestly how we thought it would be really and we do lots of different jobs within the BBC, but we'd never have to give up our staff job. And actually, I did give up my staff job because my staff job was on Radio 5 Live and I'd been on attachment for about three years. And not unreasonably, they said, when are you coming back? And I sort of went and had a meeting and I said, what would you like me to do? Here's all my new skills. And they said, we'd like you to, produ- to be a senior producer on the breakfast programme. And I thought, I'm not going back to those shifts. I can't do it. So I resigned. Idiot. No money, nothing. Just walks away. I mean, now, obviously, because I'm 56 now and pensions seem very important. But at the time, I was late 20s, probably, and pensions didn't seem that important. Early 30s, probably. But now I think, oh, what was I thinking? But, you know, I've had a lot of fun. I mean that's that's very that's that's very telling because I'm I've just turned thirty last late last year and pensions have been very important and I, I just think that's really sad of me. No, I think that's good because actually I don't entirely have a pension, so most of what I earn now I am throwing into a pension because obviously otherwise I'm going to starve. <laughs> it's interesting you were saying about engineering your luck because I've definitely done that myself some a couple of times. I can remember I was working at Silverback in Bristol, which is this uh, natural history TV production company. And David Attenborough had come in for a voiceover recording um, for the latest uh, BBC Blue Chip. And I'd, <laughs> I'd heard from the producer sitting next to me that he had just finished his voiceover. So I said very calmly, I said very calmly, um, yeah, I'm going to go to lunch in about five minutes. Is that, is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> 
and got him just as he left the building. <laughs> I can remember collaring him and he just looked around in shock and said something. I said something gushy like, you're the main reason I'm here. And he said, oh, well, well thank you very much and wandered off around the corner. <laughs> um, what do you love most about the job? We'll get on to what you don't like in a second. Um, it's the license to be nosy. I am a really nosy person. So I love that I can ask really impertinent questions. Um, so, for instance, I spend a, a lot of time on farms and I'm, I can perfectly reasonably say, so what's the succession planning? Who gets it when you die? All of those really awkward questions. I love the politics of it. Actually, I'm, I really, you know, I'm, I mean, politics, but I, it, I find it fascinating, the whole food policy farm policy all of that I, I like that um and i like working i like the people i like working with a team um i i've noticed when i when i look back because i've been on farming today a really long time and country farm too um i when you look back at the times when i'm happiest is when i've when i've got a, a steady team and you get to know them all and you and i really like that um so yeah yeah those are the things i like and and with country farm particularly um i love being outside I like the fact that I'm not in an office. So I get a bit of office, which is great because I, I, I like coffee and gossiping and warmth. Um, and then I go out and I'm somewhere totally different, often beautiful, with people who are just talking about their passion. And, and I get paid for it. It's fantastic. And now we're moving on to what you don't like about the job. Is it the endless hotel rooms, time away? Yeah. Yeah, budget hotel rooms is, are not great. Um, certainly when the kids were younger, the childcare was a living hell. Um, it, it breaks many, I was very lucky with my husband. Um, it breaks many women in particular. Um, it's really difficult when you're not working a regular job to have childcare. So for many years, I actually was paying, um, a nanny who came in and out and worked really flexible shifts, just about exactly what I was earning, sometimes more, um, because because for me, I wanted to work and I, I didn't work as much as I do now, but I, I wanted to keep my hand in and there's no way I'd be here now if I'd have given up. And I, I think as, and in fact, that's another interesting thing. As I look at people who are, who are younger than me, who are having children there, there's more of an acceptance that it will be a halfway that everybody will do a bit. The dads are allowed to take time off. Both partners can get involved. Um, Whereas when I had kids, my, my husband was great, but his, and had paternity leave of, I think, about two weeks, um, and has always regarded it as an equal shouldering, you know, and been supportive of me, even when it was costing us money. Um, but that's hard. So and, and also just not being there, you know, the, the guilt of missing a play thing, you know, like a, like a tiny little primary school play, and you're not there. And you'll, you know, you, you see it back afterwards. And, and I do wonder sometimes why I was so determined to work because you think, oh, I should have been there for that. Um, so that's tedious. Um, I quite like the traveling. I, I go a lot. I go everywhere by the train and I sit in the quiet carriage with a good book and turn my phone off and say, oh, I'm sorry, I had no signal. And it's glorious. It's three hours or two hours. of, And it's just so peaceful. So I love that. Um I mean, you know, there are days when it's pouring with rain. I don't, I don't like the whole. I find it stressful knowing what to wear and coping with my hair. I, I find that difficult. Um, I never know what to wear on country farm. Whatever I wear, somebody doesn't like it. Um, yeah, but I try. Oh, I do brush my hair. 
Although my mother sometimes questions me about that. Yeah. So that's a bit stressful. But other than that, no, I'm, I'm mainly, I like it. <laughs> Do you ever get phone calls or texts from your mum saying, oh, I think you've worn that a bit too much? Or, uh... Yes. Yes. My mum is um, now 88. My dad's 90. And um, and they're brilliant. They're fine, you know. Uh, but my mum, my favourite ever, which was a few years ago, my mum left a message on my aunt's phone. And she said, hello, lovely programme, blah, blah, blah. And she said, now, I've been thinking. And I think it's time for a fringe or Botox. Anyway, talk to you later, bye. <laughs> which is my favourite ever message from my mum. And I, I remember just, just listening to it and howling with laughter and then going into the, into the mirror and thinking, really? Um, but yeah, she's she will say when she thinks. And mainly it's grammar, actually. Because in telly and, and radio, you kind of write to talk. So grammar is... I mean, we have a standing joke on farming today that the producer will put in some script ideas and then I'll basically just take out the punctuation and that will be the script. Um, <laughs> and my grammar's not great. And so my mother will often send me a little email now saying, like, this comes there and I before E and all that. Yeah. <laughs> that sentence structure was all wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That didn't really make sense, did it? And she's she's got a, the war against so... Um, and on Country File in particular, they love to start a sentence with so. So I'm always trying to not say it because it is irritating. <laughs> um, and talking about Country File, you were a regular reporter on Country File up to 2009. Yeah. And then in 2010. I was a, on it for a decade, yeah. You were told by executives that you, along with three other women, wouldn't be moving over to Country File as its slot changed from daytime to evening because you weren't quote pretty enough for prime time what is what was that experience like to go through did that change the way you felt about the industry well yes to be fair enough they they didn't say that they they absolutely didn't say that so that was said that was reported to me by somebody else in a long story that that's that had been part of the issue um which wasn't news to me to be fair i mean um i was first told not to pursue a career in tv when i was working in local radio by a guy who worked on the local regional news and i think he meant it kindly actually i think he meant don't waste your time because this would have been late 80s and and there was an absolute you know to to work on regional news you had you had to be very presentable and I'm just a very ordinary looking person and I'm a very ordinary shape, you know, um, and that hasn't changed. <laughs> I'm not, I am not anyone's idea of a, a glamorous TV presenter. Um, so, so it wasn't news to me that that was going to be an issue. Um, they, the BBC execs never actually said that to me. Um, I'm not sure if they said it about me. Um, the, the issue um, as it came out in the tribunal, which one of my colleagues, Miriam O'Reilly, very bravely took, um, was our age. I think it was also partly that we were not very well known in TV terms. And when they were launching on primetime, they wanted very well-known people. Um, and personally, I think they could have had well-known people and still kept us. I don't think the two were mutually exclusive. Um, but uh, they decided they were going to get rid of us. And... Um, at the time, my first, I will be honest, the kids were, I think, about one and three or two and four, something like that. And my first reaction was relief because I was knackered. Um, and it was difficult. But then when it became apparent that they kept various people and just got rid of the women of a certain age, that, that made me really cross. And so I supported Miriam when she very bravely took this very public stand Um 
I wasn't part of the case actually because uh, her lawyer was working pro bono, and because I by this point I was working very really quite part time for Country Far because of the kids. Um, I wasn't worth taking on, but I did give evidence on Miriam's behalf. Um, and I think she was fantastically brave to do it because at the time it was a massive risk for her professionally because loads of people said that we were just being disgruntled and that these things happen in telly. But actually what she exposed was an absolute acceptance within TV that as women got older, they would be retired and something that didn't and doesn't happen for men. And, and I, I think she, she was so brave. I've, I'm, I have nothing but admiration for the woman. But it was a very difficult process because when you go to a tribunal, all sorts of things that people have said will be read out and they're read out without the tone of voice in which they said them. And it was really hard for the Country File team and really hard for everybody involved. Um, yeah, it was, it was really hard. Mm. I mean, I think of the, um, the Samir Ahmed um, tribunal that was only, what, two years ago now? Was it two years ago? Yeah, yeah. So I, I went, I went and um, and stood with her a few times. You know, went and walked her into the tribunal a few times as well. Um, yeah, and um, Carrie Gracie as well, who who had issues with equal pay. Um, yeah, I've been been a bit a bit involved in that as well. Um, you know, I sometimes do speeches at schools. You know, and I do say to to the girls in the audience, you know, I wish I could say to you, this is all done, but it's not. It's really not. Um, and and there's a lot of work still to do, sadly. Mm. I mean, it's just that slow progress, whereas it should be much quicker. Mm. But progress, yeah. But at least there's progress. But it has, to date, really relied on really brave women putting their head above the parapet. So it's really scary if you're Miriam or Carrie or Samira to put your head above that parapet it's really scary and and i i'm not i know actually i'm i know i wouldn't have had the courage to do it and i had the courage to hold up my hand and and support miriam but where she got the courage to do what she did i've got no idea you know it was i mean i was i was in court in the tribunal for one day giving evidence and i was i've never been as scared in my life um how she did that for two weeks, I've got no idea. But good on her because she's changed it. It was a game changer. There's no way I'd be I'd I'd be allowed on primetime telly now without without Miriam's work. No way. And 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 that goes for loads of women, you know, not just those on country file. Um it goes for loads of women. Yeah. Um, I can only empathize because I sort of I've I've had that sort of that experience of um not 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 the same experience but the, the sort of experience of it's all contact based your your line of work is very contact based and you can be out you can be sort of out as quickly as you're in sometimes so yeah. it's, it's sort of putting your head above that parapet must be yeah yeah must have taken yeah, a lot of that's, courage that's one of the things it uh, as soon as you i mean it's it's pretty contact based when you are a when you're a producer or a researcher but once you are a presenter you are very expendable and I am really unusual in that I have been doing the same sorts of things for a really long time. And that's partly, I think, because going back to, you know, when I joined in 1986, I really thought it was a career for life. And I have that very, 
old fashioned mindset in a way. Whereas I think younger people are much, much more aware that this isn't going to last. But I'm very aware of this time around on Country File that I'm just I'm just going to enjoy it because it won't last. And then I'll go on and do something else. You know, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have a slightly different attitude toward, towards it these days, I think. Um, and what would you what would you say to young aspiring people um, wanting to carve out a career in media themselves? What's what's the most important lesson that you've learned? Well, the first thing I'd say is don't. I mean, genuinely don't. Um, it is a really complicated place now, media, and you know, I have teenage children now, and I I now understand why my mum used to go on about getting a proper job because you just want them to be secure. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm sure my children would go off and do mad things, but I would much rather they got proper jobs and a profession and something they can fall back on and all the things that my mother said to me that I absolutely ignored. Um, so I, I think you have, you have to work out that you really want to, to do it. This, it can't be a passing fancy. It can't be just because you fancy being on the telly because that's not how it's going to work. You know, very few people will end up on the telly for their careers. And the people that do, like, you know, Anita Rani or whoever it is, they are bloody good at what they do. They have worked really, really hard to get there. And it's really harsh. So so that would be my first advice. Don't. Second advice would be, OK, so if you really want to do it, why do you want to do it? If it's just because you want to be on the telly or you think it might be exciting, go and spend some time, if you can, with somebody who's doing it. Because, you know, traipsing the country, ending up in the wind and rain to do a three-minute report, it's not that glamorous. And it's also very high pressure. And some people can deal with that and some people can't, particularly if you go into the news end. Um so I would definitely say if you can volunteer in hospital radio, volunteer at local radio, I mean, you'll get to answer phones, but you'll absorb what's going on and you'll work out if it's for you. Um, there are loads and loads of roles behind the camera that are brilliant, you know, researching, producing um, some of the technical roles, although just have a little bit of a thought to the future as to which ones of them will survive. Um, so I I'd, I'd just really work hard on finding out exactly what you're letting yourself in for. And the other thing, which will strike maybe people as a bit odd, but when I was at school, a lot of my friends um, became lawyers and doctors. It was that kind of a school. And, um, and you think when you're young that what you earn doesn't really matter. But actually, I earn sign I mean, significantly less than most of my friends, significantly less, uh, not just the ones who are lawyers and doctors, ones who work in management or, you know, and you've just got to work out if that's OK. And for, um, and for me, that's OK. But for other people, it's difficult. And they suddenly get to kind of 35 and think, oh, crikey, hang on a minute. I'm not ever going to earn big money, really unless I set up my own company and I'm lucky. So you just don't, you just need to have a, a bit of a think about how much you think you need to earn. And the other thing is you've got to be a bit shameless, actually, to, to make some contacts and use those contacts and all the rest of it. And engineer your, uh, yeah, yeah, that chance. Yeah, and, and, and say hello to people who you're at, your knees are knocking, but you've just got to make yourself do it. And I think hopefully, hopefully, um, it will be less about, who you know as time goes on because there's a 
you know who am I to say I'm I'm I am as you can tell from my voice uh, very middle class um but there is an issue if you look around a newsroom or a production office about how middle class it is um and in some cases how white um and and I think people are are trying to work out how you do something about that. And the first thing you do is not make it about who you know. Um, because, you know, we're missing out on some really bright people because they it doesn't occur to them that, that, that they're welcome and absolutely able to do this career. And if TV has to do anything, it has to be relevant to its entire audience. It's, I mean, it's not rocket science, this, is it? You've you've got to reflect the experience of the entire audience, and to do that, you need people who understand the experience. So I'm I, I do think there is there has to be a move, and the, well there there are moves now, but there has to be more of a move to try and be less well fewer people like me, I suppose. Well, I can, no, I, I can remember um, a couple of weeks ago I was talking to a um, political journalist for the for this podcast of, um, and he was just saying that the number of um, people in the lobby who don't have white skin is sort of three or four in a hundred still, and it's still and it's twenty it's sort of twenty twenty one, and you just think those cogs are turning, but incredibly slowly. Yeah, really slowly. And I think that's partly because it's a difficult career to sell to parents. So, you know, I I get that if I had a bright kid, I wouldn't be looking at this, if I'm honest. I get that. Um, and also, I think it's just that I had a kid who came and did some, just trailed me around for a day completely informally and probably illegally. I probably shouldn't admit that. Anyway, I met a kid um, who wanted to get into media and um, he was asking... He's from a um, working class background, black kid. Um, and he was asking things about what sort of hairstyle would be acceptable at the BBC. And I just, it was a real, I just thought, I never had to think about that, did I? I never thought, can I wear my hair like this or that? What do I know? I mean, as you get older, you begin to realise that you know nothing. You know, it's one of the great joys of getting older. Um, and you accept it as well. But I, I did think, Christ, we've got a long way to go. The, the idea of then there not being much security and you might be earning much less than your than your sort of friends and contemporaries what do you think are the most um important qualities for those who are who are sort of who are who sort of go on to become successful in in the broadcast industry yeah i think weirdly you've got to be um to be successful at the actual job you need to be more interested in other people than you are in yourself so although you're the presenter really your job is to make other people look good. So you need to draw out your interviewees and that's not actually about you. It's about them. And so that I think is the most important thing to know. But in managing your own career, then you have to be ruthlessly all about you. And that's something I have not been and I'm really rubbish at it. But I look at some of my younger contemporaries and I think, yeah, that that's how I should have been. But I'm still incapable of doing it. It's just not me. Um, but I really admire people who they they go out and get what they want. They're quite aggressive about it. And also they make their own luck. So they do, if they want to do a program about whatever it is and nobody is making it, they go off and make it themselves in a way that wouldn't have occurred to me, um, if I'm honest. So I think that's that's one thing. You've got, you've got to be a people person to work in, in this industry, I think, in any way. If you don't like people or you, you like quiet, predictable days, this is not for you. You've got to enjoy being with people and working as a team to get over whatever crisis 
has been thrown at you. <laughs> you know, this hasn't happened. So-and-so hasn't turned up. We've got to get halfway across the country and we've got two hours to do it. You know, all of these things um, will be thrown at you. And that's really fun to to do, although quite stressful. Uh, you've got to deal with stress quite well. Um, what else would I say? Yeah, I suppose that's about it, really. But mainly you've got to, you've got to get on with people. You really do. Um, you really do. I have a feeling that we both we both hate the word networking oh. equally. Um, oh. It's just the worst. It's it's sort of like a necessary evil of the industry, isn't oh. it? You, I mean, you have to keep well, meeting I, I don't people know what to, to keep say. the plate spinning. But I, know. I just um, and when some people are completely great at it they'll just take it in their stride that that is the person who works here and i'll then have to use them to get a job there and there's little or no shame <laughs> it's just not me i just can't do that i cannot do that no i don't know how you'd i still don't actually know how you do it. even now when i'm nearer retirement than anything else i still have no idea how you do that i genuinely don't get it i had, we have commissioners so uh, country file is looked after by a commissioner for bbc one who are basically the customer if you like and you're supposed to go and schmooze the commissioners oh my god i would rather die i just don't know what to say <laughs> i just find it excruciating um if i'm okay if i meet them at a thing and there's something to talk about but the thought of oh yeah, I'm rubbish at that. And you do, to be honest, um, to be successful now, you're going to have to be good at that. And also, you ha I mean, if you want to be on telly, you're going to have to be good at creating your own publicity. I think all of that is is probably a thing, which I haven't bothered with, obviously. But um, that's probably important, which, yeah, which I haven't done. And your shared hatred of networking aside, uh, what would be your biggest failure at work? Oof, um, there are so many to choose from. Um, yes, biggest biggest failure overall is not to have been pushy enough um, and not to have believed in myself, actually. Um, I, looking back, I, I was better at it than I thought I was. And I was always slightly apologetic for being there. And I should have just owned it, actually, because I was good and that's why I was there. And I was there for a long time because I was bloody good at it. Um, so that I would, I mean, there are loads of things where I just didn't prepare enough, particularly in news. Um, I remember, oh, Jane Garvey. I, and in fact, she remembers it as well, which made it even worse. Um, we were doing something about, um, I think it was Bosnia and I didn't really understand. And I'd written one of those introductions where you've slightly hedged your bets because you genuinely don't quite get it. And she hadn't had time to rewrite it. And then look, and I remember her looking through the glass because I was producing and she was presenting. And I remember her giving me this look through the glass that, you know, like a Medusa look. Um, and I thought, yeah, I, you know, I really mucked it up. So that has lived with me because I just should have done a bit more work. Um, yeah, that was bad. Um, what else have I done? Yeah, I think those would be the, the biggest things. Just prepare, prepare, prepare again. Check it twice. Then have another nervous check and, and believe in yourself you know yeah and i've always had in the back of my mind working in tv maybe more than radio um that it's almost an incompatible industry 
with with family mostly due to the long hours the the fickle nature of the beast um and all that time away from family and friends you, where you have when you're on production um for those thinking of changing industries to to media um or for those thinking about starting a family and wanting to keep the career running alongside do you have any words of wisdom well you say that i mean i am um, yes i so I was single for a really long time. I didn't actually get married till I was 39 and a half. Um, very important half. And and there's a reason for that. Um, one, a good man is hard to find. Um, two, it, I was very often not around. Um, and that's difficult. So I would agree with you. It is really difficult. Um, and I think it's difficult with a relationship just because the work sort of comes first a bit in a way that, I mean, I, I tried valiantly to marry a farmer because I thought that would be fantastic. Um, and that never worked out. And I have in fact ended up with a journalist. And I think there's a reason for that, that he, my husband understands, I understand his ridiculous hours and he understands my ridiculous hours. And also that slight, Oh, you know, you're always looking, you know, you're always slightly not paying attention. Um, but the, I would, I, I think that one thing that, that the industry, and I know that there's a campaign just starting in the film industry, which I thought was interesting, really has to work out is childcare. Because it's really challenging when you're working shifts to sort out childcare in a way that is acceptable. Now, I, I earn decent money, so I was able to pay a nanny just because that's the only way you can do it. It's an au pair when they get older and a nanny and also there is something about particularly when you have, have kids late I was really lucky to have kids you know in my 40s and I did want to be there so I did work generally three days a week either for radio or for telly I didn't really tend to do more than that um, and then so then I'm looking for a part-time nanny who'll work I I extraordinary hours that's really hard <laughs> so yeah it is a challenge it, it really is and I used to joke when I was at Five Live um I had a colleague who who was a parent and occasionally there'd be a, a nightmare and she'd have to go. And I used to say to her, the reason I'm here to pick up your work is because I'm never going to meet anybody because I'm here picking up your work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, no, I saw on Twitter that Asma Mir, the, uh, the Times Radio Breakfast yeah, host, I saw that. Yeah, has I know just Asma. become newly single yeah. after more than, a de more than a decade with her partner um, with a young child. Four-year-old so, um, and a 4am She's just star. been having to present from home yeah. this week. Yeah. Yeah, you have to be in the office for that most of the time. Yeah. And then you then it then you come up against the realities of it. So so if you're living in London in a two bedroom flat, then that's great, isn't it? Until suddenly that's one bedroom for you and one bedroom for your child and there's nowhere to put an au pair or an overnight nanny or whatever it is that you might want um or need. And that's really difficult. It is it is a difficult career to to combine with life. Um sometimes. Hmm. And I suppose I suppose you never really understand that that parents' guilt that you touched on before until you are actually a parent in terms of sort of missing those nativity plays or sort of parents' evenings or yeah I mean I was I was quite lucky in that I'd been I had been let go from Country File for quite a big chunk of when the kids were little and I um, I don't know Julia Bradbury at all but I know um, she was um, doing IVF when she was on Country File and I've always had massive admiration for her not just as a television presenter but as somebody who went through that while doing this grueling traveling um, and I think it is really difficult to be to be away from the kids that much so I, I actually by the time I was 
back on Country Far, they were a bit older, so it was much easier. And now they're teenagers, so they can't wait to see the back of me. You know, they don't want to <laughs> they talk to me when I'm here. So what difference does it make? Um, yeah, so it's it. I, I was, I, you know, lucky. The timing was quite good <laughs> for me in that way. I don't know if I'd have survived it. I don't know if I'd have carried on with Country Far. I don't know. Got to be honest. So what what happened what happened in 2010 when you were let go from Countryfile? Did you did you then go back to doing radio full time and then then TV came sort of gradually back again? Yeah, yeah. So so um, after I got sacked, I think I had a bit of time off, and then I went back to Radio Four and just said because I, I because when, once I'd had the kids before I'd been doing Countryfile and Radio Four various bits but then when I had the kids I just wanted to do one thing and Countryfile was better paid so I did that which was great and then it was beginning to rack down a bit um so I was doing little bits of radio but not very much um and so when it went away I was able just to pick up the radio and gradually do more and more um so it worked that that was okay actually and I I was very lucky to be able to do that and then I I can't remember how, it must have been seven or eight years later, maybe more. Um, I got a phone call from the series producer on Country Files saying that, that Tom Heap, who was doing the sort of role that I, I had been doing, the more newsy side of things, um, was having some time off and would I want to cover two weeks? And I said, I, yeah, hmm. so I had a bit of a think about it and part of me wanted to say no. Um, I absolutely won't. But in fact, it was the same year. It was I was going to be 50 that year. So I thought, why not? Why not just prove that I can walk and talk and chew gum at 50 and nobody will turn off or send in letters of complaint. And indeed, you know, people were surprised that I was back for two weeks. But the, nobody complained as far as I'm aware that there's some old lady polluting my television. Um, and so I've just been doing a little bit more every year and I'm well, I'll be 57 later this year. So we'll see how, how long it goes. That's miraculous because everybody, there is always at least one person who will be writing in or emailing in to complain. Yes, I mean, probably they haven't told me. Maybe they've got a whole post bag of people going, get this old lady off my screen. <laughs> but as far as I'm aware, nobody has complained. I mean, they've complained about me, but they haven't complained about my age or my, you know, forehead in need of Botox or my many chins. Or your fringe that as, needs to be a fringe. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. As far as I'm away, they haven't complained about that. And actually they've been really supportive. So I had a knee replacement last year. I mean, something that makes you feel really old. Um, I have arthritis. And so I had to have a new knee last year. Um, and it was really nice because there were about two or three viewers who got in touch because they were having new knees as well. And for a while it was really nice because we were texting back and forth you know and it was really nice because I kept thinking it can't hurt this much and then they go no it really does and I'd feel a bit better you know so so no they've been so far so good the media industry has has sort of a reputation of being slightly an old boys club with positions of power sort of being filled by white white men from top universities and private schools do you think this still rings some sort of truth today or is that that description in the UK at least a, a little bit outdated? It's a little bit outdated, but only a little bit. Um, I, it, had I stayed on my staff job and not, you know, had my ego not taken over and I went down the presenting route, then I was I was destined really for a career in kind of junior management, I would have said in news. Um, and a lot of my contemporaries um, were Oxbridge. I'm not uh, at all. Um, a lot of my contemporaries were Oxbridge. Um, part of me thinks, you know, if you go to Oxford, it's because you're really clever. 
So obviously you're going to end up running the country. Um, but I'm beginning to wonder. Um, so I um, so I think that is has been true. Um, and there are certain a lot of men of a certain age wearing chinos when you walk around Broadcasting House where the BBC is based. Um, but it is, I, I hope, I mean, I sort of look behind me, as it were, at the younger people and think, yeah, it's not, it's, it is changing. And I think, um, you know, people like Tim Davey uh, is really aware of the issues. Because, again, it comes back to, to understand when you grow up you kind of think that your family is how all families are you just think life is like everybody's life is like mine this is this is kind of and as you as you go out into the world you realize that there are many different ways of doing family or many different ways of doing work or many different ways of doing whatever it is um and i think that's sort of what the bbc is doing it's it's just it's been marching to a particular type and this is how it goes and and now it's realizing there are a thousand different ways of doing it and it has to get all those people in so that it can cope with that um so i i genuinely think it's getting better um but it's difficult for me to say for me to say particularly after a year doing everything from my front room well yeah i mean how is talking about the coronavirus how has your how has your job sort of changed or not changed um in the last 12 months with this pandemic well radio stayed much the same uh because instead of going into broadcasting house or down to bristol um i just did did it from from home which was fine if a bit boring and the kids when they were doing homeschooling never got to the idea I, I put a, I put shut the door and I put a sign on the door saying don't come in I mean how hard is it to read the sign anyway and they'd just wander in and say can I have a and I'd be in the middle of an interview with somebody so that was that was fine um obviously I couldn't go anywhere and I didn't I hadn't appreciated how reliant I was on getting out into the countryside at least twice a week I just hadn't clocked it and I hadn't clocked how important it was for me to get get out and stand in, in the countryside. So that was different. Television, actually, I had to give up for the first lockdown because I was actually shielding because I've got um, weird lungs. Um, and then for the second lockdown, I did a deal with my... <laughs> with my specialist because I was climbing the walls and and I wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of more at risk than the average person, but not as risk at risk as many people who are shielding. So I managed to swerve it a bit. So then I started doing a bit more filming, which was great. Um, and then now we're sort of getting back to normal with, you know, fingers, toes crossed. You have to observe the, the two meter rule. You, you know, it has made life a bit more complicated. But generally, no, it's sort of chugged along. I've been really lucky because I've been able to work, which has been really good. I'd have gone mad otherwise, I think. And also the kids were teenagers, so I didn't have to do homeschooling, which would have finished us. Was it was it radio interviews that you were doing? Um because I can remember the uh, that BBC uh, interview with the with the guy whose kids just sort of uh, ambled in, and then his wife just sprinted in afterwards. Oh no! Th- yeah, that was brilliant. Yeah, trying to get them back. That was brilliant. No, the best one was where um, Sam, my son, walked in, and I said, "There's a sign on the door," and he said, "But you weren't using your radio voice, so I thought it was okay." I said, "I don't have." radio voice like i hear the producer killing herself at the other end going yes you do (laughs) (laughs) don't have a radio voice anyway (laughs) and if you had your time again 
Would you still choose medium broadcast? Uh, why uh, or why not? Yeah, I still would because I've had such a lot of fun and I've loved it. I'm and I've met some really interesting people, and you know I. I don't just go to their businesses. I go to their homes. I lean on the Arga. I, you know, I walk around their businesses. I, I've met some fantastic people, um, and I'm nosy. And it's been the perfect career. It absolutely has. Yeah, I'd do it. I'd, I'd do it better, but I would do it again. Yeah, paid to be nosy. I mean, what, what better thing is that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, you get to pretend it's a career. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely do it again. I just, I've been, I'm nervous about saying to other people to do it now because it's such a different industry than when I started. Um, and I'm very aware, particularly in TV, that researchers, you know, when, when I was starting out, I had a BBC job with a pension and rights. And now researchers starting out will have a three month contract on, you know, rubbish money. Whereas I was, I mean, I'd never earned loads of money, but I've done okay. And I just think that's, it has really changed that, that you, that you are earning not very much money with no guarantee of anything after three months. And that's a hard way to live. Yeah. And some of the jobs I've worked in, um, has been, it's been less than three month contracts. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and sometimes you really, really have to fight for to be put on the pension from day dot. Um, and they'll just come back and say, oh, we've got a three months deferral period. And you're just like, oh, that's nice. That's the sort of length of my contract, isn't it? Uh, that's funny, oh, what a coincidence. I mean, it's literally peanuts at the end of the day. And to have to fight for that, it's a bit, it's a bit depressing really. And this ridiculous thing where you can, you can work for a company for X months and then you have to go away for three months in case you, in case you should get some rights. And I think, I think TV needs to... I don't see how that's going to change because of the finances of it, but I... So that's why I hesitate to say to somebody, come into this really fun career. And that's why I think people do have to be realistic about how much money they want to earn in their careers. Because actually, you're not going to earn as much as a skilled tradesperson, a plumber, say. Um, You're not going to earn as much, obviously, as lawyers and doctors and people like that. And and you have to think that through. So, So... it's much, I mean, I think you'll have more fun, but you won't have security of employment and you won't have a great pension and you will have to hustle. Like, I just think people have to be realistic about that. It's not, it's not the industry I joined because I'm ancient. <laughs> I can remember when I was starting out, people would just, people still do sometimes say, oh, a TV, isn't it very glamorous? And it was like... <laughs> Um, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Maybe 1% of the time. To be honest, I still am hoping for a glamorous TV job. I've done, I've done maybe two where you're inside and you've got someone doing your makeup and it's fantastic. But mainly I am standing outside in an anorak in the rain. Yeah. Thinking my glamorous media career. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I think this is this is why I sort of say one one percent glamorous because I can remember in the first couple of years um, of working in TV, I got a uh, uh, through somebody breaking their leg. I think I got a job on Bake Off, and that was just 
I've arrived. <laughs> and it's just lovely. The crew are lovely and the cast. And it's just such a nice bubble. I'd give my teeth to work on Bake Off. One of the researchers on Country File worked on Bake Off and she was a runner on Bake Off. So basically she had to just get people to the right place and eat cake. And I'm like, in fact, the guy who runs Love Productions also worked on Country File when he was but a babe. Um, And I keep thinking I must just write to him and say, as my retirement job, you know, I I would like to be a runner on Bake Off, please, because I can eat cake. (laughs) Just be nice to people. Well, maybe you could be the runner whose sort of sole responsibility, this is a real job on Bake Off, um, is to go back and forth between the supermarkets just to pick up the extra ingredients that the bakers need and, and bring it straight back to the tent. Maybe you could do that because on the downtime, after they've done their bakes and after they've done the technical challenges, um, all of it, bar the tiny sliver that gets sent to the judges, gets sent to the back. And it's just a food uh, carnage. You'd see people who'd been working on the programme for the whole run, or sort of five, six years or so, um, or even longer, just coming armed with a couple of empty empty um, Tupperwares, just looking at, right, okay, this is for my wife, this is for me, this is for the kids, this is for the drive back. <laughs> you just think it's brilliant. Yeah, this is my this is my perfect job, and you get to be in the tent. And it, I'm I'm always assuming it's high summer, and it never rains. And it would be Ooh, sorry to burst your bubble, but filming starts in <laughs> spring, early early spring. Oh, don't tell me that. No, really. Yeah, it's March, um, so it's freezing cold, absolutely freezing cold. And the presenters, bless them, wander around in sort of rugs and blankets for for the first month or two, um, and then and then obviously when it when it gets to chocolate week, it's they they set it at the exact time where there's a heat wave every year, every year. So you're in a melting, you're melting inside a single glazed oven. <laughs> They're trying to do sugar work and chocolate, and it's just bonkers. Yeah, that's true, actually, because it's always melting. I love Bake Off. I love the fact that Sue and Mel used to, in the first series, they were saying in an interview that they used to, when something went wrong and someone looked like they were going to cry, they used to stand next to them and swear like mad so that they couldn't use it because they wanted it to be a nice, friendly programme. And I thought, oh, that's so nice. No wonder I like it. (laughs) No, I can remember being in the office at Farming Today, um in Bristol when the news came down the wires that everybody had Mel and Sue had left um, and then then Mary Berry was uh, leaving as well to stay at the BBC and then it sounded like Channel 4 had just bought a tent with with Paul Hollywood in yeah (laughs) yeah exactly and actually I now watch it on Channel 4 and it's perfectly fine you know it's fine and also you could see that point because of the whole category and how it was being financed and stuff now I'm a big Bake Off fan and last question if you could distill all the advice you've given today um, to a newbie starting out in the broadcast industry down to a sentence or two, what would it be? I'd say do your research, separate the reality from your impression of it. I'd say hustle and enjoy it. Enjoy every minute. Charlotte Smith, thank you very much. That's a joy. <laughs> I hope some of that's useful. I hope you enjoyed that episode with television presenter Charlotte Smith. If you'd like to hear more episodes from this series, search for us on Apple or Spotify. Next week's guest is political journalist Aubrey Allegretti. So what do you do? Is an ampersand speech production.